Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, Obviously, I'm not Tony. So if you look at your listening guide, it's going to say your teacher's Tony Liston. I am not him. Uh, Tony started feeling bad uh, this week. Uh, Steph's been down. So he called me at like 11 a.m. on Thursday and said, hey, I need you to teach tonight. It's like, okay. All right, send me your stuff. So here we go. This one, I'm actually, I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited to teach this one though, because as we're walking through this series, you know, I've said it the last couple of weeks uh, at the end each week that, you know, these, the reason we're doing this series, the reason Tony kind of chose this and we're going in this direction is because uh, these are questions people are asking. And they may not be questions that you're super interested in, but I can promise you this. You've got family members, you've got coworkers, you've got other people around you. These are some of the questions that are keeping them from, they're keeping them away. Because they've watched a YouTube video somewhere, because they've done whatever, and, and they've come to conclusions about this, maybe not with all the best of information. And so we're not, we're not hitting like the really deep dive on any of these, but we need to have an overview. So you got a place as a jumping off point. I, I just want to encourage you with that. As we go through these each week, this is not the end all be all. This is not an exhaustive like dive into any of these. This is to give you a springboard to kind of go off of. All right. This one that we're going to talk about this week, I, I think it's one of the most important. Next week, I think is going to be really important too, because these are absolutely questions that people are asking. You know, in our multicultural, kind of all inclusive society, to claim that. Uh, To claim that any one religion, or especially your religion, is the correct one is kind of like people taking uh, their nails and running it down the chalkboard. Like, people can't handle it. It just, it drives people batty. It drives them up the wall. They they shout that uh, a claim like that is, is hateful. Uh, that at best it's hurtful and disrespectful to other people from different faith systems. Often they'll, they'll kind of try to go through then and just kind of discredit and go, well, maybe you got something, but like you can't make that claim because you got this problem, this problem, this problem, and this problem. And here's often how that part gets verbalized. Um, kind of four fallacies that, that people use to, to kind of avoid this issue. Uh, the, the first one is, is the road analogy. And it's, it's kind of something you've probably heard before. Uh, it's kind of a road analogy for faith. Let's kind of put it in these terms. If you're going to go to Chicago, how are you going to get there? I-80? Somebody else has got it. Like some people, how many of you are people who you can't stand getting off the interstate? Like you will only drive on highways and interstates. Like there's some people who are scared to death of going on local roads, right? Other people are like, I want the most direct route and I don't care how many stoplights it takes me through, but I'm gonna go the most direct route. Like that way I can speed in between each little town, right? So some of you guys are those. People are going to pick different ways to get to Chicago, right? One destination, but lots and lots of different ways to get there. That's, that's, the, that's the road analogy. It sounds pretty open-minded and sounds, sounds very relatable, right? Another common explanation for why all religions are the same is uh, another analogy called the elephant and the blind men. Do you guys remember that story? Probably read it in like fifth grade or something like that. 
Um, so that, that's kind of borrowed from an ancient Hindu text, and uh, it's a story that tells a group of blind men who, who approach an elephant, right? And each one of them kind of has her hand on a different part of the elephant, and so one man goes up to the trunk, and he's trying to describe it, and he says, well, it's like a, it's like a huge snake, this thing that's here in our room with us. It's like a big snake. Another one feels the ear, and it's like, ah, oh, it's, it's like a big fan. Uh, this, it's, it's a weird, like, wavy fan thing that's there. A third places his hand on the elephant's leg and says, no, no, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It's like a big tree trunk. It's like this huge tree that they planted in our room. A fourth guy pushes on the elephant's side and he's like, it's like a, it's like a weird squishy wall that's here in front of us. A fifth guy holds the tail and says, well, I think it's kind of like a rope. Right? And the final man feels a tusk and he says, no, 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 this is like a big spear that's there. And so, you know, what's the point of the story? All these guys are touching the same animal. They've all got a limited perspective, right? And so in their limited perspective, as they all look at the animal together, uh, they, they, they basically it kind of rolls into, you know, all religions are just seeing little pieces of this bigger thing. You often hear it summarized by saying, my God's too big for one religion. The third one is kind of a, a personal fallacy. So Oprah kind of popularized this notion in our popular culture that each one of us has our own personal truth, right? And it can't be questioned. Therefore, Christianity may be true for me, but that's not necessarily your truth. Right? The Bible may give me God's truth, but for you, maybe it's Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places That You Will Go. Do you guys remember that book? <laughs> right? And so therefore, the Bible and the, the story of Oh, the Places That You May Go, those have to be equal. Those are considered of equal importance in people's lives. And we're told that no right, you know, that, that nobody has the right to question somebody else's personal truth. The last is just simply the mandate that all religions must be respected. Even if we believe a religion isn't true, we're required by the thought police to believe as if it were the truth. We've got to treat even religions that are made literally out of mocking other religions, like the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Did you guys know that's a real thing? It's been around for a long time. Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, totally just a spoof off of other religions. It's just there to make fun of it, but in the midst of the, kind of this kind of thinking, we have to treat these the same, and so equal, uh, Christianity is equal to it. And you're not allowed to question that. And so for a lot of us, that kind of leaves us in the space where we go, okay, where am I then? Like, where does that leave Christianity? Here's reality. We've got a tension that we have to learn to live within. And the Apostle Paul did this in a phenomenal way. We have to learn how to live within the tension of truth, but also grace. There's a tension between those two things in our lives, practically. So you know, first and foremost, I just tell you, we cannot accept as true things which we know are not true. You can't accept truth which is not true. As much as I, I reject the belief that gravity is a conspiracy or that birds don't exist, which by the way, are popular beliefs right now. If you go on Reddit, you will find lots of threads dedicated to both. I know those, I, 
I don't believe it that, and I know that there are certain truths of God's truth that I can just look at and go, look, this thing violates God's truth, therefore I don't have to believe that that thing is true that I know is not true. With that said, scripture also tells us to treat other people with respect. Again, one of the fallacies that a lot of people live with today is that to disagree with somebody's beliefs is to disrespect them or to devalue them as a person. Because God is truth, scripture does not command us to respect other beliefs as equal to Christianity, straight up. However, scripture does command me to to love my neighbor, right? And to observe and respect the value that he inherently puts into every living human being that has ever walked on the face of this earth, including the people who are sitting around you right now. And the people who are at home who uh, you might want to punch when you get back home. And the people at work tomorrow that you definitely want to punch when you show up for work tomorrow, right? All of those people God has put an inherent value into, and God has called us to see that in them as we follow him and learn to have a heart like, he, like his heart. Contrary to popular belief, I, I can treat you with respect without actually respecting your belief. I, I could tolerate your beliefs without being disrespectful to, to, toward, toward you, towards who you are. I, I can say I think you're wrong without being disrespectful or unkind or again, devaluing the inherent worth that God has created you with. That is possible, it really is. Let's go back to that elephant story for just a moment. The story is, the elephant, that story, it seems like respectful and enlightened, right? The message is, religions are not right or wrong. Each kind of holds this small glimpse of this bigger truth that's out there. Sounds good. But the elephant story only works because the person telling the story is not blind. Therefore, they are above the debate. It presupposes a belief, a being who can see this absolute truth who is there. In other words, while demanding that all religions respect each other as equally valid, the person telling this story is expressing that he is in the superior position, the, the more respectable place. Do you see how that works? Like it's almost contrary to what the story, like we make it out to be. Stories like that are, honestly, at the end of the day, they're more about preventing questions than they are about answering them, and it leaves people kind of out there just seeking and and just kind of wandering rather than helping other people search for the truth. I want to suggest to you today that lovingly attempting to persuade other people to change their beliefs is actually a sign of respect. And I know there's going to be some people this weekend who have a hard time with that statement. That is not a popular statement today. How could that be true? One, I just tell you, in doing so, you're actually treating people with great respect when you start working through because you're considering them intelligent thinking agents with the ability to decide what they believe who aren't just simply products of their cultural environment. Like, they have that ability. They have free will. They have, they have a brain. So therefore, I respect you enough to have an intelligent conversation with you about that and to kind of work through those things. Like, that is a sign of respect. 
Yeah, I meet Christians who get offended when people express doubts with them about Christianity or about their faith. Man, we shouldn't be offended when people challenge our beliefs. To some degree, we ought to be flattered by that. That, that act may reveal they actually love us. You guys know who Penn and Teller are? Man, there's a, Penn Gillette, he's the bigger guy. He, he's been doing vlogging and like video stuff for years. I mean, for a long, long time. And there's an old clip of, of Penn Gillette. And it's one of my favorites. And he's actually, I think he, I don't remember if he's in his apartment or in his green room, but he's just kind of sitting back and he's got his hair down and he's just, he's just talking. He's kind of having this conversation before the next show. And he, and he goes through, um, and he's a, he's a vocal atheist. And at the last show, he had a guy come up to him and offer him a Bible. And so he's ha- he, he has this little dialogue with the camera about that. He's talking about it. He was really moved by the, the man's gesture. He said this. He said he was kind and nice and sane, which those are always three things that go well together. And he looked me in the eyes and he talked to me and then he gave me this Bible. And I've always said, listen to this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's the opposite of kind of popular culture right now, right? He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make you feel socially awkward, there's a problem. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? This is his question. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Again, because you feel nervous about it, because you feel bad about having the conversation, about whatever. He goes on, he says, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I'd tackle you and this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, and sane. Again, three things that go well together. Try to be those three things and you come across with a lot more credibility. I'm just, a little bonus for you there. And he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. Now, he's still an atheist and he goes on in that to like really go, he did not convert me. He wants to make that very, very clear. But I I love his point. You know, when questions of truth carry life and death consequences, persuasion at that point is an act of love. So are the world's religions just simply different voicings of one truth? And if they are making competing claims, does disagreement, is that, does that entail hostility? I mean, is that what I'm carrying out into the world? Or can people of conflicting beliefs actually live peacefully together? Is that possible? Well, claiming that, that all beliefs are equally valid, kind of creates some practical problems in life. One of them is the problem of respect. You know, we live in a day where feelings rule supreme. People are governed by their emotions more than, than their rationality. Maybe no place is that more apparent than on social media, right? I mean, it just, it's amazing what gets spouted on social media that you know they would never say like face to face. And disagreement now is seen as a sign of disrespect, and it's treated with disrespect. 
Our society has lost the art of debate even within friendships and so we surround ourselves with with only people who kind of echo the same things that we think and believe and talk about. And this is something that is actually being written a lot about even today on college campuses. Like this isn't just a Christian thing. There's a whole lot of people out in the world who are seeing this from all kinds of different points of view and going, man, we're, we have a problem. Like I heard Bill Maher talking about this the other night. Um, in a New York Times op-ed entitled The Dangers of Echo Chambers on Campus, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristof, he wrote this, he confessed this. He said, we liberals champion tolerance except for conservatives and evangelical Christians. We want to be inclusive of people who don't look like us so long as they think like us. Now, you may hear that and go, yeah, it's the liberals. Look, let me tell you, every group has this problem. I've been in a lot of churches that have this same problem, right? This is a risk for all of us. We've got to cultivate deep friendships with smart people and even some smart people who we fundamentally disagree with. I'll tell you, you never grow unless you got some other people around you who are challenging you and kind of being iron sharpening iron. The willingness to respectfully and intelligently challenge someone, that is a sign of respect. Even today, with all the risks involved in disagreeing with other people's belief, there's a greater risk in not doing so. We fail to test our own beliefs, and where where beliefs carry life and death consequences, we fail to, to act in love towards the people that we say we love. Man, sometimes we just gotta get over ourselves and step out there. Second problem is the problem of truth. 2016, so every year the Oxford Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary creates a word of the year and it's supposed to be like a word that sums up like kind of the the cultural zeitgeist, you know, kind of what's going on within the culture. 2016, anybody know what the word was? Oh, you put it up too fast. I was going to be really, really impressed. Somebody was going to get a star on that. I, I do keep a poster in my office with stars for people. I was going to give somebody a star for that one if you knew this one. I didn't expect anybody to know this one because I didn't either. But the 2016 word of the year was post-truth. This is how they defined it. An adjective as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. What does that mean? In other words, how you feel emotionally about something is more important than whether or not it is factually true. That was their word of the year. Nobody can live like that for very long, man. That way lies in madness. Tony told me the story of a friend of his who was really, really proud of his family history and, and it was re- at least the, the way it was revealed to him in family lore. Do you guys have some family lore about some people who are kind of back there who they did this or did that? Somewhere, my, part of my family lore is that at some point uh, on my mom's side, like one of the guys who was in the party who found the Cumberland Gap, like I'm related to him, so yay. Yay me. Growing up in Kentucky, hey, that meant something. Doesn't mean anything to you guys, but it meant something in Kentucky. So anyway, um, this guy was kind of obsessed with that family lore to the point where like he went and traveled around the world to visit places where, you know, family lore said that he was from. Spent a lot of money going and investigating that stuff and going and visiting those places and kind of, he was just totally in. Then he did an ancestry DNA study. <laughs> 
And Tony was telling me about it. He goes, man, the results shook him. He confronted his mom with the results, and she finally told him the truth, that the family history was nothing close to the stories he'd heard. They weren't even from the parts of the world where he had spent all the money to buy plane tickets to go visit. And he was so invested in it, it broke him emotionally. Because suddenly his foundation was gone. Who he thought he was is now, I don't know. You know, sometimes we find that our beliefs are about our own narratives, and sometimes we find out those beliefs are wrong. One of the very first classes that I took in Bible college was uh, an overview of the Old Testament, an overview of the New Testament. You know what a big part of those classes were? Going back and going, hey, I know your Sunday school teacher in third grade taught you this. Does it jive with Scripture? Like, that was the main thing. I know Grandma told you that there was this little cliche in Scripture somewhere. Is it actually there? Sometimes that's a hard thing to go back and find out some of the things you thought about God, thought about scripture, thought about life aren't actually real. What happens when our perception of reality didn't match the evidence of reality? Like, truth isn't concerned with your emotions. Facts really are facts. Truth is simply truth. We should want to seek out the truth, but to do that, we got to examine the evidence and get past our own emotional bias. Third problem is the problem of history. This idea that all religions are basically the same, that all religions are basically going towards the same truth, man, that becomes a problem quickly when you really actually start looking at religions through the lens of history. Historical truth is challenging. We, we all bring our, again, our individual, our cultural biases to questions of history, but we can't abandon the search for objective truth in history. Um, there's just too much at stake. Let me give you an example of one place just in, again, kind of within the last hundred years or so where it's really, really important, right? Let me use the Holocaust for an example. The Holocaust either did or it didn't happen. There have been a lot of attempts through the years to deny the murders of millions of Jews and gypsies and political prisoners and others that the Nazis felt were undesirables. Some of us, man, some of us have been to those camps. You know, one of the things that I've had the privilege of in the last two decades of ministry is being around a lot of guys who were in World War II. Some of them who helped liberate those camps. They've been there. They saw it. They were broken, most of them, because of what they saw. Look, attempts to deny the truth have to be rejected. The evidence defeats the denials, the horrid historical facts. They should be, they have to be acknowledged irrespective of how you feel about those facts. So what light does that shed on religious truth? Well, the central claim of Christianity is what? Central claim of Christianity comes down to one historical thing. What is it? That Jesus died and was physically and physically raised from the dead. I, honestly, everything else we believe is built off of that one premise, that one belief. 
There's historical evidence for the resurrection claim, as surprisingly unpersuasive as it, as it may seem to some, yet the extraordinary you know, phenomenon of the early church erupting from this small group of dispirited and somewhat cowardly followers of a crucified rabbi cries out for an ignition point. In other words, you can't look at the church and just go, man, that, yeah, that could just happen. That doesn't just happen. When you look historically, it doesn't just happen that way. There had to be something behind it. And whether we think the evidence is strong or weak, it's still a historical claim. Jesus was either raised from the dead somewhere around AD 33 or he wasn't. Believing or not believing in the resurrection doesn't change the objective reality of what happened nearly 2,000 years ago. And this is a question, I'll just tell you, you know, okay, all religions are the same. Man, the great three monotheistic religions treat that claim very, very differently. Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. Again, kind of central truth to all of Christianity. That is a foundation stone. Muslims believe Jesus didn't die, but he was instead taken up to heaven. Jews, as well as atheists, agnostics for that matter, they believe Jesus died and he remained dead. Like, this is, this is a divergent point, Right? This isn't we all believe the same thing. No, this is a very specific thing that we very much disagree about. These claims are mutually exclusive. At this foundational level, religious truths cannot be untangled from historical truth. Even when we narrow our scope just to the monotheistic faiths, to say that all religions are equally true is to lose our grip on some historical facts. The fourth problem is a problem of conversion. Encouraging someone to leave their cultural religion, especially if it's not Christianity, is seen as at best imperialism and at worst oppression. But let me connect how historical investigation leads to real life change. Some of you may know the name Nabil Qureshi. Anybody know who that was? He ended up passing away really young of stomach cancer. He was an amazing guy. He was raised as a devout Muslim in the United States. His family were key members and leaders at their local mosque. He grew up studying the, the Quran, studying Islamic apologetics, which is, is how to defend what he believed. He engaged Christians in religious discussions and debates regularly. And he slowly became friends with a Christian man and he respected this guy enough that at one point he asked him, hey, can we sit down? I want to do a deep dive between the differences between Christianity and Islam. Would you do that with me? Would you be willing to be a part of that, to really like investigate? I, like, I, I want to throw everything at Christianity. And really, he was going into it to discredit it, but he was honest enough to say, can we do that? And the Christian guy said, all right, I'll do it. I'll spend the time because, I mean, this was going to take time. This was not going to be just a quick discussion over coffee. He goes, I'll invest in doing this with you with this one caveat. I have one request. Whatever standard we apply to Christianity in the discussion also has to be to Islam. So whatever standards you want to discredit Christianity with, we have to use the exact same standards for, for Islam. So we just got it. Apples to apples. That's it, right? Two years. Two years they worked through this on the historical claims of both Christianity and Islam. Nabil one day discovered that Islam could not withstand the same scrutiny he was uh, attempting to apply to disprove Christianity. But Christianity was withstanding the test. 
And he's confronted with that. He, he found himself working his way through that reality and it led him to accepting Jesus and he chronicled his results through that journey in his first book, uh, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. Great read, great book. You find it on Amazon real easily. Since he was an intellectually honest guy, he had to make a decision on how to live based on the fact that these two, these two religions were making competing claims that were, molten, that were uh, mutually exclusive and he realized both of these can't be true. Because they both can't be true, my life has to reflect that. I've got to make some real life decisions. Now, his family disowned him because of it. With that said, one of the things he did all the way till the day he died is he continued to pray that they would find Christ too because he believed that was so important for them to understand those truths that he had found. When we find objective truth supported by history and by honest evidence, our conscience is forced to make a choice. Fifth one is the problem of Jesus. One final problem with that elephant approach is Jesus. He's a problem. You know, it may be possible to square some religions with each other, particularly, you know, I spent some time with Tony in India and in Nepal, and again, they had Hinduism, and they have like 33 million cataloged gods. So when you got 33 million to choose from, like you can, you can take, like, I, I hate, you guys do puzzles? I hate puzzles. I'm the guy, I like to pound puzzle pieces together. So I mean, like, at some point, you can pound some stuff together with certain ones, right? But Christianity is like a puzzle piece that it's from the wrong set. No matter how hard you pound on it, it just doesn't bend the edges. It doesn't fit in to everything around it. Let me explain just a, a few reasons why Jesus kind of throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing. Number one, Jesus doesn't allow for other faiths. This problem stems from a pair of direct statements Jesus made. Look at John 14, 67. It should be there in your listening guide. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. That is a hard puzzle piece to pound in and make fit with the others. That statement rules out all the other religions. It was considered then blasphemous by both Judaism and Islam. It is considered today blasphemous. But he didn't stop there. He says, if you had really known me, you would know who my father is. Again, another statement considered blasphemous at the time, considered blasphemous today. The puzzle pieces don't fit together. Jesus also claims to be the one God. One of my favorite examples of this distinctiveness of Jesus comes early in his ministry. Jesus is teaching in a, a house that is so packed out, nobody can get in. And there's some guys with a paralyzed friend who goes up on the roof of the house. Some of you guys remember this story, right? They get up on the house, what do they do? Tear the roof off. <laughs> there's a song about that, I think. Anyway, uh, they, they tear the roof off. They lower the paralyzed guy down into in, in front of Jesus. And look at Mark 2, 5 through 7. Seeing their faith, which by the way, that's the faith of the friends, not the faith of the guy being lowered down, right? Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Why? This is an important statement. Like, we read this and we're like, oh yeah, it's Jesus. Now, it's not just about healing the guy. What does he say? Only God can forgive sins. It's a big deal. 
Jesus has gotten them riled up because he's about to make an important point. In fact, he's about to make a very exclusive point. That again, still today, considered blasphemy by both those in Judaism and Islam. Mark 2, 8 through 12. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? <laughs> he kind of challenged them. He puts them on the spot. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? What do you think? <laughs> Which is easier to do? Look, you can say you believe a lot of things, but actually making a paralyzed man stand up and walk, that's impressive, right? Like, words are cheap. It's easy to say stuff. So he goes, you know what? Just so you know, I'm not just saying stuff. Here you go. I'll prove to you the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. He didn't just stand up. What did he do? He jumped up, which if I were paralyzed, I'd jump too. Like, that'd be exciting, right? That's a good day. He grabbed his mat and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. This is where I wish there were video cameras. Like, I'd love to see that whole thing, but I really, I wish I could see the looks on people's faces in the crowd. And then what happened? Did it turn into pandemonium? Did they just all just sit there in shock? I don't know. Jesus proved his authority to forgive sins by telling the paralyzed man to get up, right? Noticing he didn't deny the premise of the religious leader's complaint. It was a valid premise. If I stand up here and tell you that I have the power to forgive your sins, Old Testament, man, it's time to stone me, right? That's blasphemous. Only God has the right to forgive sins. He demonstrated their conclusion. The premise was right. Their conclusion about him was wrong. He did have the right to forgive sin because he was God in the flesh. Third thing about Jesus is he declares he's the key to eternity. It's a problem. That feels exclusive, doesn't it? John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Over and over and over in the gospels, they record Jesus doing outrageous things that only God could do, right? Commanding the wind, Anybody tried that before? Has that worked for you? Forgiving sins, feeding the multitudes, raising the dead. I mean, that one goes to the top of the list, right? Jesus claims he is the only authority. And he gives us a command. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus claims rule over all of heaven and earth. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as a very exclusive path to God. And we may choose to disbelieve him. I mean, you've got to come to a point where you have to make some choices about that. But he cannot be one truth among many. He simply hasn't left us that option. And by the way, I know like we're getting, you know, we're looking towards Easter. And at some point, Discovery Channel is going to start putting all kinds of stuff about Jesus and the resurrection. And you're going to find some people who have their doctoral degrees in seminaries or, you know, around the country. And they're going to go, yeah, it was all just a made up myth. Didn't really happen. The church came up with it hundreds and hundreds of years later. He never claimed that he was divine. Let me tell you how I know that's not true. 
tell you how I know that he claimed he was divine in the moment. That's how he got crucified. Nobody refutes that. No serious scholar of theology refutes that. Right? Jesus made these claims. These claims are the basis for the Sanhedrin to go and to say he should be crucified. And they can't do it, so they take him to the Romans. And when the Romans go, we don't really care about your religion, about you know, this part of it, they go, no, 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 no. In the midst of saying that, do you realize he's also saying that he's Caesar, he's the king of kings. And by saying that he's a king, he's a revolutionary. And by being a revolutionary, this all comes together. This is how Jesus ends up on a cross, practically speaking. Church didn't make up the divinity stuff later. Man, it's the earthly reason he was taken to the cross. At some point, why you believe what you believe matters. I was listening to a, a well-known psychologist this week on a podcast, like a four-hour podcast. I was listening through it. He made a statement that lots of different disciplines have found to be true. I've read this in lots of different ways through the years. When people don't have a foundational set of parameters to live by, they're miserable. What happens when kids don't have rules, right? That's a basic version, but look, as adults, we need the same thing too. We need boundaries. We need guardrails. And if we don't have them, we're miserable. On a base level, this is what we're talking about. Truth matters. It matters in your life, and I would suggest that if you truly love the people around you, you will care about the truth they base their life on as well. Do you know that the one missional aspect Jesus left to each one of us is to be influential in the lives of the people in the community around us? Go back to Matthew 28 and read it again. Right? What does it say? Go disciple, right? That means you gotta have a good reputation and you gotta create influence. You gotta live such a life that people trust you, that people look to you and go to you, that, that you have influence in people's lives. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's much of what the early church struggled with, how to do. Go back and read through a lot of the New Testament letters. So much of that is talking about that. And grace is so important to that. How we interact with people may be one of the greatest responsibilities that each one of us has been given. Every person breathing right now, if anybody's dead, please let us know later. <laughs> but everybody else that's breathing, everybody that's in here, we have a responsibility. God's given us something to steward and its influence. Each of us daily have opportunities to leave a net positive or a net negative impact in people's lives. But truth is just as important. You can't divorce one from another and what God has called us to. Find that balance in your own life, then don't let fear, anger, anything else get in the way of living out the influence that God has gifted you with. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for letting us be here. I thank you for loving us. Even in spite of our own rebellion, I thank you for sending us the truth. I thank you for scripture that lays out truth very plainly. I thank you for the people that you've put in my life and the people that you've put in the lives of the people who are in this room and online. Father, I, I thank you for the people who have challenged us and helped us to grow. And Father, I pray we continue to. I pray we continue to ask hard questions. I, I pray we continue to seek out the truth. I, I pray that we continue to help other people find that truth. But Father, also help us to see people through your eyes. Help us to see people with a heart that's like your heart. And Father, help us to steward 
the influence that you have, you have created space for in our lives, you've created opportunities for. Help us to steward that well. Father, help us to take the next steps we need to take. Help us to be salt and light. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.